Well, hello again and welcome to another episode of Interwoven from The Weave. As always, we are focused on helping entrepreneurs and businesses from around the region who are doing amazing things in the field of sustainability. This time is no different. I don't want to keep you in suspense any longer, so let's have a quick look at what's coming up in this episode. We have a great conversation with Neil Shamru, who is using his talents to help communities particularly affected by knife crime. A conversation with Dom Tyler, who is using his skills in software creation to tackle the growing problem of electronic waste. James gives his thoughts on the book Measure What Matters by John Doerr. And finally, we have Temani Katsumu sharing her passion for female wellness as well as hygiene products made from waste banana fibers. So enough talking from me, let's get going with an insightful look in how software can be used to tackle the massive but often unseen problem of electronic waste. Today I'm really pleased to have a discussion with Don Tyler. He's a highly experienced um, software uh, CRM developer. He's been sort of in the local area for running his businesses for a you know, number of years. Dom is somebody that I've known, like I say, for a number of years, fully experienced in that area. I want to, and we will be sort of discussing his journey and some of the things that he's been involved with. So welcome, Dom. I'd like to start off with just a, a very sort of kind of um, introduction to how you got into software. How did you get into the world of um crms and the world of technologies and things like that what was it that drove you okay bit of a fluke really to be honest with you james um and thanks for the for the fantastic intro um i'll zoom back a little bit but i'll make it a very brief bio so i kind of pretty much flunked at school i wasn't very academic in a classical sense um and then my my father had an opportunity to work in Turkey, so I followed out there with him, worked as somehow managed to qualify as an English teacher. Again, the fluke, teaching English as a foreign language. Um, got on well there, but the girl I was engaged with, that kind of fell apart. So I came back to the UK and managed to land a job. You notice the, the trend here is a lot of flukes. <laughs> managed to la land a job at a software company in sales. And um, there was no systems for running my job. <clears throat> and it's quite complex to link up the well when you're when you're that age to link up the, the suppliers and the purchase orders and the customers and the invoices and there wasn't any type of system for that so i started picking up excel first and then microsoft access and access couldn't do what i needed so i decided to write my own system bit by bit and before i knew it, i was kind of coding with no intention of ever being a software developer or any interest until the development team kind of offered me double the salary to move from sales and then and then funnily enough i said yes so um I did that for quite a while, um, and then when I met my now ex-wife, um, she kind of made she, she kind of made me more career focused. Um, and shortly after that, I became managing director of that business and moved away from the technical stuff more more to focus on the commercial side of things, which I found a lot more interesting. The grey areas of people versus the black and whiteness of computers, if you like. Okay. <clears throat> so that's where it all started. Yeah, I think I think everybody's. You call it flukes or opportunities or just things that manifest themselves when they kind of bump into you and you think, oh, that's a, that's a great idea. I'll go off and explore that. I think my, everybody's career is 
peppered with those particular areas. Well, the business that I'd mentioned that I'd kind of flicked my way into from sales into uh, from development into sales, um, I left there with a lot of um, skills that I hadn't had previously with with regarding kind of automation and managing people and marketing and sales, a little bit of everything. And I thought I could probably go it alone. Um, so I managed to kind of bootstrap the first three or four months and built a nice system with some developers, using some developers in the Philippines and India that I managed to interview um, and then just started networking. I think you were one of the first, if not the first people that I'd found on LinkedIn, actually, James, when I decided that that was the way I had to go to kind of get the, get my name out there. And then it kind of um, picked up from there. But then funnily enough, my biggest client from Conclusis then asked, well, they, they were paying me a day rate and they said, we can't afford this. You're getting paid more than the CEO like this. So we, we've got to employ you instead. And it was a, a nice offer, but it wasn't the money really. It was the fact that I was going to and from Africa constantly that was exciting to me. Yeah. So that kind of escalated my skill level even more. And during that period, I was then, um, I'd reached out to some software developers and got introduced to Genari as one of them, uh, as part of me actually introducing Genari to the Africa business. And the previous owner of Genari, um, was kind of looking to exit at the time that I was looking to get back into running a business. So when I was running the business that I've mentioned at the start, I was managing director, but I wasn't the owner or the chair. But I liked the idea of building something up. And Genari was in a, a perfect position for me. I, I like the kind of the uphill struggle. That's the exciting part. Yeah. Um, and it, it had one developer and a few customers and the technology was quite old. And I could see all these challenges, but I could see ways past them. I knew it was going to be a couple of years with hard work, but I built up a little bit of surplus from the um, contract in Africa, the work in Africa. So, yeah, that's that's when I came to kind of buy Genari. As, as the ageing population goes on, the demographics change and there will probably be more people going to look to buy businesses and maybe even people looking to exit businesses as well because of you know the, 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 that maturity of that process so one of the things that when you're in that kind of mindset about buying another business in your head what was the what was that process because it's quite a sc scary thing to do in a lot of respects isn't it it's quite daunting because you're actually you know first and foremost you're there's a lot of trust that you're you're instilling within that particular area but also you've got to kind of imagine like you say you saw the problems and you saw the, some of the solutions that you could provide but in terms of that kind of thinking process what was your due diligence what did you feel like you needed to cover um, that made you and got you to that point of comfort to actually make that commitment well once we'd established that there was some interest on both sides um, it started out with months and months worth of conversations, general conversations, slightly slightly unstructured, if you like, what the mission of the business was, the history of the business, um, who'd previously worked in it, what type of customers were interested, why some of the sales didn't work, those type of things. But then over time, it became a lot more structured. And we started putting together lists of things that we want to cover. For, for, for example, um, we, we spoke about every single customer and every key person there, every customer in detail and so we were meeting at least once a week for four to five hours at a time for somewhere between six and nine months so a lot of time went into the due diligence obviously that could be compressed but i think the time between those meetings was time to reflect and come up with new questions so i think it's a good idea to put that much time in so that was really interesting because i i, I was it was giving me an opportunity to ask questions about for example what future work there could be because obviously when you're purchasing a new business cash flow is critical if you're buying a new business that's just covering its costs you have to think about, you know, how, well, how's it going to cover my costs? What am I going to do in the first six? How's the first six months going to go? Am I going to, can this brand new guy coming in win, win trust and upsell to them all in six months? So 
coming up with a strategy for every single customer to maximize my chance of having an upsell. So to win their trust and maximize the chance of an upsell, that that was really, really important. So that goes hand in hand, obviously, with the financials. I wanted to understand all of our regular purchases, all of our sales, as many as going back as far as possible, especially the ones we'd lost. I was really interested in the ones that we'd lost and where we captured the reasons for why and what we might have done differently in hindsight to kind of almost help train me for for new sales. But, But my initial focus for the first period of time wasn't to make new sales. It was to get as much as I possibly could from the existing customers. Uh, so part of it was the, the the boring stuff, like going through all the user and technical support stuff to get an idea of where how au fait with computers customers were, uh, reporting on whether they were even worth keeping in some cases. You know, if they're paying us that per month and spending that much of our time, maybe it's not worth it type thing. Um, a little, So a little bit ruthless in some ways, um, but you don't want to come in guns blazing. Um, yeah. You're really in the back foot, obviously, being a new face. And then the the critical final part, once, once everything had been agreed, the critical final part was, you know, how do you announce it um, publicly and to individual customers? And, you know, you can't go around to 30 customers in a month, obviously. So there's three months worth of organizing these visits and sitting in front of them. And you don't know what they're going to say, you know. Well, I mean, you promised us this training and we've paid for it. And that's a tricky conversation when you're watching cash flow. So it was, it was very, very difficult, but very exciting. And I could see the potential there. It's that bit, isn't it? That that seeing the potential and looking past that, you know, there will always be those difficult conversations, won't there? Because not everybody can be treated in exactly the same way. And you there's only one of you, or there's a, you know, and you've got to disperse your your time effectively around. So it must have been, you know, challenging in a lot of respects in that regard. But I guess that what you saw at the end of all of this was uh was was something that could take your vision of a business and actually be the carrier of it the brand that you could see and develop so what was it then realistically looking at that 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 kind of that brand development that you felt that you could make your own having taken on an existing brand what was it that you felt that you would be bringing in that would make this unique to to you well, one of the challenges that Gennari had and the motivation for the, the previous incumbent to sell was that they'd, they'd built a hell of a lot of additional features on old technology. This would be akin to me getting a 40-year-old car and doing it up constantly for 40 years, and it still obviously won't be the same quality as you know what a large car manufacturer can create with 40 years' worth of additional technology. So we were left with that 40-year-old car that had a million plugins. But it didn't do a lot of the new stuff. So it had no awareness of things like social media or a lot of the stuff that we take for granted in new systems. So I'd become aware of Odoo, which was the um, replacement for what we'd done. But I wasn't sure how to handle, you know, how do we take a lot of those enhancements that we created with that old technology, which were excellent, very good. The guy who owned the business before me was a very good software architect um, and, and bring the best bits of those in. So we started to do that. And made it made a couple of good sales in that first year to carry us forward. And then, and then, I'd, part of my due diligence that I forgot to mention was I was profiling past colleagues, past staff, because okay. there was only one member of staff left in the business. And I had in my mind that probably the place to start for re-recruiting people would be to reach out to people who used to work for us and say, you know, well, we're starting up again. I'm the new guy. Um, do you fancy having a chat? And the one person who stuck out was the person who helped set up the business in the first place, who's Russell Briggs, um, who's still with me now. Um, and so he came in and then that kind of took us to the next level. Then I had a technical person who was there full time and very forward thinking and shared my vision and we worked very well together. 
Because this has been a five-year journey, isn't it? So around that sort of length of time within Mm. that. And you've grown the business substantially within that period. And I know that you're, you know, you're working with a lot more customers. And it must give you a great deal of satisfaction to, to, to know that that's the journey that you've been on. In terms of maybe one thing that, that you feel really proud of in that journey, can you grab one thing that you think, yeah, I'm, I, I think that really is a statement of success? I think it was learning the new platform that we had no experience with, uh, which is Odoo, which is what we now sell all these years later, learning it inside out, obsessing over it, and then going to customers and making it sound like we had a lot of experience with it until I eventually made some sales and significantly bigger sales than what we'd been making previously. And it was that courage to go in there and talk about how manufacturing worked, having never been in a manufacturing role, but just watched videos and played around with the system and talk about all these other parts of the system and and demo it confidently. I've got to be honest, the first couple of times I did that didn't probably go so well, but you got to fail forward, haven't you? Fail fast. There's a couple of things there, one of which is confidence, right? How valuable that is. And that's something that it can't be taught. It has to be, it has to be created in your own belief. You know, you invested all of that time, effort and due diligence into the software into understanding it so that you had the confidence to stand in front of somebody, even though it didn't work on the first couple of occasions. I don't know how long it took you to learn about the language and learn about it from that point of view. But I imagine it was a pretty intense process. I think there's a great deal about that from a business perspective is confidence is so important and it resonates and it creates, it it manifests itself in our body language, in the way that we talk and the way that we can actually conduct ourselves. I know that we touched on this, but the, the key change or the key area of development has become maybe more about sustainability concept, this idea of how do we create something more circular? How do we do something? So how did we? How did you get from what you were doing within the CRM world and the customers you were working with to recognizing that there needs to be more, there needs to be progression and change within your industry, and you wanted to be a part of that? Yeah. So, so before I even bought Genaro, my, my whole vision was to identify an opportunity where we could resell a product because bespoke work isn't particularly scalable and it's very expensive to deliver. And there's a lot of risk on individual people. You can't automate bespoke. That's the whole point of it being bespoke. So you charge a premium, but it's still not that scalable, not without a lot of effort and risk. So if you think if somebody comes to you with a with a reasonable budget for a bespoke system, that's got to be an opportunity to check out the market. So you look and think, well, why why didn't you get something off the shelf? Was it was it the cost or the features or the advertising? There must it's something worth looking at. So I've been doing that for every customer, and in every case, I was putting myself in their shoes after they've made a purchase. Putting their, myself in their shoes, thinking if I had been in your shoes, I probably wouldn't have actually gone for us. Um, I might have got that off the shelf. So that's not a great option until we picked up a project for a business called ICX in Whitham, which is very close to where we're based in ITAD, ITS at Disposal. So we created this system for them. I thought it was an okay system, but more interesting to me was that the two other systems in the world that did the same thing, I didn't really rate those. I looked at them and I could see, what I, I realized what ICX needed. I could see what they were trying to do and I understood why they came to us. So the obvious place to go is, is back to them, you know, well, we're already doing your project, you've committed to us, why didn't you go with these other systems? And that gave me enough reason to look very deeply into the market. So I started testing the market, talking to potential prospects, 
finding out what they used, what they didn't like about it, and started obsessing over all the hashtags on social media and learning what all the pains were in the industry and decided to take the risk and put a significant amount of time, um, a lot of our own time as well, and this is Russell, who I mentioned earlier, and myself, building this system called Recycly. We're now at the point where we've pretty much finished it in the last week or so, finished what we call the MVP, the minimum viable product, although there's a roadmap for another three or four years. And we've got customers lined up, ready for us to kind of do everything live. We're actually deploying one now, back back to ICX. We're giving them the the revised version of the system. Um, And we've got customers lined up and we're going to start deploying from January properly. And every deployment's going to get quicker and more streamlined and then we'll build the business from there. I'm coming at this from a, a point of view of a complete novice. So, so what it? So, what is IT asset disposal? What is it actually do? This is where organisations will have hundreds, even thousands of laptops usually, and every three to five years they will want to replace those laptops. And you can't just chuck them in the bin. I mean, there's a couple of reasons you can't just chuck them in the bin. Firstly, it's a bit of a stupid thing to do, but also there's a lot of toxic waste there. That's called e-waste. 55 to 60 million tons of e-waste a year globally is just stuck into landfill, which is shocking. That's 80% 80 of everything that we could have rescued has actually gone into landfill. That's toxic for the environment and the air and the water system. So even if there was no other reason to do this, you know, reducing that effect, it would be pretty amazing. So ITAD businesses are the ones who will collect those, but they will also destroy them responsibly. So they they will either refurbish them or they'll destroy them or they'll harvest the parts. But the critical bit is the hard drives. That's where the data stores. So if you've got military, schools, hospitals, anywhere where there's confidential information, banks, it's absolutely critical that that stuff is destroyed properly. But the hard drive can still be left usable. So it's quite a unique industry. They've got two sales pipelines. One pipeline is they they call them inbound orders. It's where they acquire, that's where they acquire the equipment in the first place. So they'll have a deal with Barclays, for example, to collect their 500 laptops from three branches every three years. And then they have the outbound orders, which might be they they sell via eBay or Amazon or directly on their own e-commerce site. And that's and then the bit in the middle is where they do all the processing. And they they might give money back to the customer. They have a contract for that. So there's actually a lot of parts to that. And it's quite a complex business setup. And I felt, having understood that, that the other two pieces of software out there didn't cater for it sufficiently. They left a lot of manual processes in the middle. And I could see how that we could solve that with years and years of effort, which is what we've put in am i right then in saying that the process might well be laptops or or hardware that comes to you you reconfigure it and then resell it or do you strip it of its component parts because i also know from research and stuff that there is an awful lot of precious metals embedded in in hardware but in that respect are you making is there a marketplace that you're potentially taking that area the the metals and the other components Well, so, so what we're doing is creating the software to run those ITAD businesses. Oh, okay. Yeah, as opposed to actually being an ITAD business ourselves. Because that that can give us a gigantic reach globally, rather than just kind of creating a brand new fantastic ITAD business, we could reach thousands of ITAD businesses around the world. And so when they collect, typically what they'll get is like um, a poorly formatted asset list and a photo of a pile of equipment. Right, and and then they'll say, "Can you collect these two hundred laptops?" And then they'll have to look and think, "Well, it doesn't look like two hundred laptops; just like a mess." We'll take your word for it. Then they take them in for some an audit, basically, and they have to one by one assess them. Sometimes you can see straight away that's clearly not going to make it, and sometimes they'll think we might as well harvest the parts from that, including the the metals. But but sometimes it might be that you can take the RAM out, or the screen might be reusable. So there's different levels of harvesting. 
and then sometimes they're just beyond any economical repair and they have to be completely destroyed um so they go through so there's these different processing actions they take and then hopefully as many as possible which is a really good kpi for these itad businesses financially but also from an environmental perspective is how many they can refurbish to resell so as you've kind of hinted they, they often upgrade them in the meantime so the ram that they've taken out of those laptops over there that's sat in a box that can go in this laptop over here to upgrade it so that it's more saleable in e-commerce cool so how do you in that business how do you then judge your success is it upon the success of your customers doing more of their itad work and therefore the, the better that they can do it through your software is a measure of success to your your business. Are you measuring that in um, in carbon, in 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 other metrics other than just simply financial or, or whatever? That's a very good question. I know it sounds a bit grandiose, but the final metric, the final KPI we'd like to get to, bear in mind we're just starting to roll this out, could be how many potential lives we've saved. Yeah. Yeah. Because if you reverse that back to how much e-waste has been reduced and the toxic effect of that e-waste, so we can start measuring by capturing anonymous data how much, what the performance of these ITAB businesses were, was like at the point they started using the system. And then over a one-year period, what the average increase is and how many users we've got overall. And we should be able to actually work out roughly what that is and, and, and refine that, that those KPIs over time. So if we were serving a thousand ITAD businesses and reducing that 60 million tons, even by a million tons globally, and that 60 million tons was responsible for X number of people's health issues, we could calculate how many people's health we have improved or potentially lives we've saved. So it's a nice end goal KPI there. It's a fabulous one, actually. So, I mean, it, I don't think it's grandiose at all. I think, you know, we're living in a, in a world where, um, things are rapidly deteriorating. And I think that we need to have businesses like yours that generally will address the damage that we're doing. And it's regenerative. And if we can express that in something as human as, as the quality of people's lives or indeed longevity of people's lives or just simply in their lives, then I think at that particular point, it becomes more meaningful. So we know a little bit more about that kind of the business and the way that it's going. In your vision of the the future, right, this is a big, big industry, isn't it? This is a big, big problem that needs to be done. And you, you're you looking at it from that perspective. So tell me that you, you've spoken about lives saved, but in your world of presenting a vision of recycling in the future, where what does it look like? Where What do you imagine? going to work is like in 10 years time uh for, for, for us at recycling well much as i love sales i'm never going to be able to sell to five thousand itad businesses around the world because that would just be that would be the rest of my life taken up with sales um and i'm really keen on the idea of resellers so i've been working on that for the last 18 months and the, about two weeks ago we signed up our first reseller who we're kind of training now um so we've come up with a really nice reseller agreement and eventually that person who was specifically chosen to be employed into the business at some point will then be a, a channel manager who can then recruit other resellers and gradually pass across his customers to them. So the idea is that, that they'll have their own customers and will effectively be selling recycling to them to sell to their customers. And they'll take a little bit of the upfront fee and some of the ongoing costs to support their own customers. That's the only way we're going to get gigantic reach which is what we're aiming for. So we're obviously starting in the UK, yeah. we've identified Germany and the Nordic regions and then the rest of Europe and then other speaking English speaking countries, probably leaving America till last because they've, they've got quite a lot of competition there 
even though we don't rate that competition, as I said earlier, still still not worth going there until we can you can knock them off their pedestals comfortably. Yeah. Oh, brilliant! All right, excellent. We like we like we do love to hear about ambition, particularly ambitious businesses within the region. So I think you know having that mindset is hugely uh, encouraging. Um, Dominic of nineteen years of age, right? 18, 19 years of age. What advice does do you give him in this world of business? Stop picking fights and making trouble concentrate on your career uh, don't put bad stuff into your body because it slows everything down <laughs> i don't know i'm quite ha- quite happy with the the way it's gone to be honest i think i've got the right balance of, i'm quite happy with the balance of risks that i've taken and i've learned to become i quite enjoyed the journey of development no, knowing now that the things i did five years ago i would do better now i find exciting i don't think i would have wanted a further push i because the journey is the exciting part isn't it so yeah, i probably wouldn't i probably would have just said treat my body more sensibly than i did i've always exercised but i i countered that by with other stuff so quick fire round um just some personal questions favorite band guns and roses guns and roses okay excellent last tv box set or movie that you watched that you thought was was really good i only watch stuff with the kids really normally action films and things like that so i can't <laughs> think of one i'm afraid well i saw a post on linkedin where you were recommending um the founder is it the founder? oh the founder that's fantastic that's brilliant yeah yeah because yeah. I, I actually then went off and looked that up and start and i watched it and i thought absolutely i thought it was absolutely mm. cracking a um, yeah. couple of things I thought it was really good as a, a demonstration of innovation at that time from the the brothers, but it was also ethically quite a challenging film as well. Favorite book? Do you ever get a chance to read, listen to books? Uh, I listen to a lot of books. I really like Black Box. Actually, I was going to say Black Box Thinking, but if I had to go all the way back to the roots of what changed my thinking, it would be the E-Myth Revisited. Still, I would still, if I had to give one book to my 19-year-old self, it would be The E-Myth Revisited by Michael E. Gerber. All right. Okay. Excellent. And your favourite meal on your birthday? Oh, wow. Um, it would be an Iskender kebab because I lived in Turkey for a long time and I loved that food there. Dominic started his journey as a creator of content management solutions for companies. Then turning his sights on electronic waste is just the sort of entrepreneurial vision I love seeing in my time working for The Weave. Considering he's looking to expand, I can't wait to hear the continued news of the positive impact that he and his team is going to make. The fact that he wants to be able to measure his success in lives saved is another testament to his ethics and vision. Up next, we have James talking about the book Measure What Matters by John Doerr. Welcome to the Weaves Interwoven Book Review. And um, we try to bring you book reviews just because we we firmly believe that it's like having a mentor in your pocket when you read. It's like delving into the minds of the author and certainly drawing into their wisdom. So in this particular review, we're going to look at a book written by a guy called John Durr, and it's called Measure What Matters. And it was uh, published by Penguin. And it's a real sort of kind of idea to this this whole concept of OKRs and the idea that, that it can drive growth. And on the book and the cover, it says it can you know create a multiple of growth within anything that we do, maybe as much as 10 times more effectively than if we don't have this kind of goal setting mindset. So in Measure What Matters, the author, John Durr, has a masterfully presented um the concepts of OKRs. It's a, a method pivoted towards propelling 
um, businesses and startups to achieve their goals. So Dua, he breathes real life into what can be a daunting world of goal setting. And ultimately, he does this with the narrative built around real businesses, the anecdotes and invaluable lessons learned from industry and from the leaders within those industries like Intel, Google and as much as LinkedIn as well. So one of the key strengths of the books lies in its clarity and its its way that it elucidates the whole kind of ideas of objectives and key results. Durr's skillfully structured every single chapter around the major principles of the practice. He's done this in, in a really accessible and, and incredibly easy way for readers to digest um, the message and also through the power of storytelling um, keeps you engaged and ultimately blending that kind of idea of practical wisdom with personal insights. So the book is not just a, a book that is a guide, it's, it's an essential aspect of learning this particular process and really engaging with this particular idea of really sort of kind of setting these particular goals, looking for alignment, um, flexibility and agility between that, that area and the power of making things transparent. Beyond its sort of industry applications, or indeed the world of startups, the strategies often, re you know, readers have a chance to revamp their own personal objectives and goals as well. I used this massively when I came to doing my master's degree. I set out what really mattered to me in terms of which particular modules I was taking, the kind of results that I was striving for, and within each module, what were those particular results, the kind of outputs that I was actually aiming to achieve. So Measure What Matters is not just a, a book, but it's an essential guide for everyone looking to bring that kind of alignment and flexibility into their whole mindset. So it's a must read as far as we're concerned for anyone who wants to drive their business forward and improve their productivity, improve their growth, improve their mindset, and ultimately kind of maintain that idea that goals are not just simply Quantitative outcomes, they're qualitative and they ultimately can be shaped by the narrative of the business. So when we're kind of thinking about the goal setting environments and we use traditionally those SMART goals, the specific, measurable, achievable, realistic and timely outcomes, they can sometimes become burdensome by their sheer inflexibility and they can lead to feelings and a sense of um, failure or not attainment. So in this particular way, the OKR model embeds that more aspirational voice within the business, but it also gives you the opportunity to engage with a tool that has a degree, a degree of dynamism within it. You can push the boundaries more and you can readjust your aim at any particular area, but you're always aligning yourself to the clear north star that you're aiming towards and I think that's where the real power of it is from the point of view of a startup and ultimately from the point of view of that aspirational entrepreneur. So the recommendation is Measure What Matters by John Durr, New York Times bestseller, OKRs, the simple idea that drives 10 times growth and we believe that it ultimately does. So good luck, good reading and we'll catch up next time. I always love hearing from James about the books that have impacted on his thinking. 
Just a reminder, if you join the free Weave community over at weartheweave.co.uk, then you will have access to some in-depth book analyses from James. Think of it as crib notes, but supercharged. Now, we get to hear a conversation between James and Neil Shamru. Raised in London, Neil wants to use his talents of communication with his passion for community to make a difference. Today, we're going to be talking to a entrepreneur um, from the University of Essex, one of the student entrepreneurs that we've worked with over the past, and um, somebody I think that you'll find really inspiring in terms of what he's achieved, his passion and his enthusiasm for helping and supporting the younger generation. So um, without much further ado, I'll introduce you to Neil. That's Neil Shamru, who basically, like I said, was at university, is now graduated, and he's on to the next stage of his education and also the next stage in the development of his business and his business idea. So welcome, Neil. Thanks very much for joining us today. How are you doing, James? That's that's the first time anyone's introduced me like that. So yeah, that's really cool. <laughs> First of all, let me just um, go back a little bit from where we are. So just tell me a little bit about the journey from where you, you've you come from and yeah, um, how did you end up getting into university at Essex? What sort of encouraged you in that pathway? Yeah, no, yeah. So uh, born and raised in Croydon, South London. Um, and the reason as to why I got into Essex was actually through clearing. So um, it was, yeah, it was my, uh, my A-levels. Um, weren't at the um, the standard that I thought it would be, so therefore I didn't get. I actually didn't get into the um, the offers that that I uh, came through. So yeah, I actually came through Essex through clearing, um, and yeah, I studied uh, business management. I did undergraduate for business management, and that was um, like it was something that I really wanted to do. Uh, I've always done business ever since I was like young. I've always been um, studying business ever since GCSEs. And it was just the subject that I excelled in, even in my A-levels, it was the subject I got the highest level in. Uh, so it was always something I wanted to pursue in terms of like further education. Um, and yeah, that's basically just how I ended up in, in Essex, really. Okay, so to, in terms of sort of kind of business and business studies, then, so you, you say you always wanted to kind of do it. What is it about business and that kind of world of entrepreneurship and things like that that kind of excite you? It was it was always interesting. It was always like okay, it sounds bad because I don't think I should be I should be watching that at that age. But I used to I was watching Wolf of Wall Street, and when <laughs> I was watching a movie like that, it was just inspiring. But what it wasn't it wasn't essentially his lifestyle, but it was just the way he worked. Um, it was just the way of working. It was like you would work on your own time. You're in charge of quite literally everything. Like you own everything, and and it was just it was just fascinating to me to be like I I have the ability to go and do that like that is a space where I can operate that is someone I can be um and I guess just holding on to that that belief and that hope just being someone that you know you can own things you can run it the way you want to run it it's not always going to an organization and working by their standards you can create your own and have, be your own organization um and yeah no it's just it's just it's always been fascinating to kind of believe that and um see that the the world is in a sense run like it's, it's run by that like it's, it's all just been people running these organizations and everything around you have been created by businesses and yeah it's, it's fascinating to see the world in that way excellent a, a lot of what you've done in the past and what you've been involved with has been you know in to be fair quite serious stuff you know the things that you first came to us about were youth violence and knife crime and wanting to kind of get that but you've 
worked with people, young people, and you've, you've positioned yourself uh, in that mentoring leadership role. What qualities in yourself do you feel maybe that you have that gives that role some grounding emphasis in your life? What is it that you really enjoy about it, but also why do you feel qualified to be involved in it that way? Yeah, um, yeah so I've, I've, been, I've been a mentor, like a qualified youth mentor since 2021. That's when I was um, starting my kind of journey and working with young people and working in schools, working in, in alternative provisions, working in community centres, summer camps, all these kind of provisions where young people are just based and situated. Um, and I think ever since I was young, um, my parents have been fostering, so I've always had a little foster sibling. Yeah, whether whether it's a, a it's a brother or a sister, I've always had someone who's obviously going through that kind of foster system. So there's there's clearly something that's going on back home. Whether whether they're international or not, that we've had we've had international kind of innocent refugees that that have have come in and they've really needed a place to stay. Um, and it was just natural for me to build a relationship with them. And it was almost like just instinct mentoring. Like I didn't, it's not like I, I did it with the idea of doing it. I just kind of built that relationship with them. And they always, you know, me and, and whoever that person was, we, we, we just always get along. Um, and I guess, I guess that was, that was like the, the start of the conversation when my mom was like, you're really good with young people. Like why are you always good with children? You should start working with them. And it was, it, yeah, it was, it was a thought that came across my mind ever, ever since I was like 14, 15 and 16. But I was, I was obviously a, a young person myself um so yeah I, I guess it was it was at that time it was just you know waiting for the time waiting for the time to happen um and it's strange like that that kind of conversation the idea of working with young people um was left when I was doing my a-levels and I was you know doing business studying business at university it was always just it was kind of a business mindset it wasn't you know what do I do about business it's just kind of learning everything about business everything about the business world um and entrepreneurship so I didn't have an idea in mind and it just so happened to be a business working with young people. And then they, those two worlds just kind of colli collided and fit, fitted perfectly. Um, and I think in terms of my qualities, I think what makes me, um, the way I believe it, like a, a great mentor is relatability and choice. Um, you touched on it already, like a, a, a large part of what I saw growing up is is not necessarily something that young people should see. Um, you know, I grew, I grew up in a world around that violence when, when Croydon was was classified as knife crime capital, that was me when I was about 14, 15. Um, when I was when I was 15, I lost my friend to knife crime. Um, and ever since then, it, it was just like a kind of an effect where I just kept seeing certain negative circumstances and situations just affect me externally. And it was, it was, yeah, and it, it, it was just natural for me to not kind of go into that path and follow that path and still make great choices. Um, so that's why I always tell them, I always say it's relatability and choice because, you know, very similar to the young people I work with, I've made choices just as bad as theirs, but how have I ended up here and how in your kind of destined path, you end up to something a lot more negative. That's because I've, I've, you know, I've made the right decision to make those choices. Um, so I guess, I guess I kind of bring that to young people, I always tell them that relatability, um, a large part of the school system is like, obviously schools and these alternative provisions, um, they have a lack of staff, so they don't have that many role models in fact a lot of the schools i've actually I've, I've actually kind of applied to and tried to work with they're looking for male role models because they don't have that many role models in these provisions so how that affects the young person is that they, they don't have that effective role model to a someone be relatable to them and b to help them make the right choices um so yeah I've, i feel like i step in and i just fit that I fit that play and um and yeah that's why i feel like i'm you know that, that's kind of where i got my the basis of my mentoring from
Fabulous. You've identified the problem. You've identified how you were affected by it, how you saw it, how you engaged with it. What kind of encouraged you then to see mentoring and the choices and the alternative sort of kind of perspective? What what encouraged you to start to put that back into the communities? Where do you feel that you could be taking that particular piece of delivery forward? What is it that you imagine that you would love to do on a bigger scale or something within that world? I think what started it was my was my first like ground experience with these young people. So in, in 2021, um, as I mentioned before, it was where I started working with young people. It was my first ever time in schools working in any sort of provision like this. And this was on behalf of an organization called City Year. They're actually a charity. Um, and they're, they're the ones that effectively trained me um, and kind of taught me that I have these qualities in order to be a qualified mentor. Um, and they're the ones that sent me to this school in Croydon, Oasis Academy, Shirley Park. Um, and yeah, th- that year that I've spent in that school was was where I opened my eyes to everything. Like it, it was the best way to explain the first year of working at a school is like when I was last in the school, I was a student. So now the the next year I've come back, not, not essentially the next year, but now the next time I've, I've entered the school, I have a lanyard and I'm a staff member. So it just opens up so many things. It was like, oh, this is what teachers do when pardon me, they're on a break. Or, oh, this is what you do when you're on break and lunch duty. Or <laughs> this is where you are when you know all those things that you're it's just it, it was it just opened my mind. Um, but I guess that's on a positive scale. On a more scale that I guess empowered me to work with young people, it was the kind of the lack of that pastoral relatability kind of role that young people have, that lack of mentorship. As, as normal in, in, in every single school, there's that academic pressure. But in communities like Croydon, in, in areas and neighbourhoods like Croydon, like when there are, you know, high rates of knife crime and youth violence and there's signs of gang activity and young people doing, doing these crimes at such young ages, it's not a thing where they need to be better in their academics. There's something going on. There's something else going on that's affecting their, that's affecting their mental health, that's affecting, you know, that some, something that's come on far beyond the school and and this is what the school has to deal with in terms of young people like this is their young person that's what they're going on before they come to school it's not just that kind of academic pressure um and what what's fascinating fascinating about that is that you're those young people who lack those kind of i'd say mental health support and they they lack that that support in terms of their well-being you know no one's really supporting them in that regard that just naturally affects their academics anyway so rather than kind of targeting the academics let's target the source of the issue let's target what's really going on behind closed doors and that essentially to schools will help pile onto the academics and make the academics better um and that's what i noticed in in that school that they they, they kind of lacked which is fair because I've, I've noticed it in in many other schools and it is difficult to cover those topics um but i guess it's just where i stepped in as like external to support to kind of be a mentor but be a personal development mentor so you know work, working on is like the step away from the academics what's going on at home you know what, what is it you want to open up to about you know to me what, what, what's something that you can tell me that's relatable um and then when they start telling you these stories and, and start opening up more it's almost like sometimes i see a flashback of myself when i was younger and it was like yep i've gone through that um or sometimes it's it's, it's far worse and sometimes like you know what i haven't really gone through that but i could you know i can resonate with the pain i can see the pain and that element of pain or that element of anger i guess those emotions we can focus on rather than the actual situation those emotions we can focus on and that's how we kind of deal with it that's how i always um have dealt with it and and i've seen that progress i've seen 
you know, working with students in that way, giving them a break from academics. And let's really, let's talk about real life. Let's talk about what's really happening. Um, when they get back into lessons, they have something to think about or they're either at ease. So when they go back into lessons, surprisingly, if it, it, it has a positive impact on their on their academics. Um, and it's just something I've realized and something I've always stood by. So what's, so what's the name of your business? So my social enterprise is called Talk Less Do More, short for TRDM Limited. And um, as you can cover, we, we we strive to tackle knife crime and new violence in and around London. Um, we do this by working with young people aged 11 to 17. And we offer services like mentoring, life skills coaching and extracurricular activities. Excellent. And is it just you or have you got somebody else working with you on this? Or Yeah, I have a, I have a co-founder working with me on this. So it's just me and one other person at this very moment. Yeah. And in your mind, when you look at your business, do you see lots of you, mini kind of yous in different schools? How are you imagining the kind of relationship between these young people and the business itself? Is there a technology solution that you're looking at or something which reaches out and does more? Yeah, no, of of course, I, I aim to make it huge. Um, it will be a, a situation where... There's multiple, as you said, me's, but there's multiple just mentors um, working under my organization and going into every single school. And the aim is is it's almost like a spread, right? Because we've acknowledged these kind of negative factors and we want to tackle that with positivity. We want to be positive about that. And we want to kind of use that kind of positive aspect to show that, you know, there is positivity in the world and your world can turn positive regardless of the negative background you have. So in order to kind of spread that, we want to aim to work in as many schools as possible in a concentrated area. So each school has their set amount of students and not one student goes to many different schools. So even if you do work in one school in that neighborhood, there's about 20 to 25 other schools that has children very similar to the school that you're working with. So for me, it's like, yeah, let's let's diverse and let's get into those schools in that neighborhood. So, for example, Croydon is what we're trying to target. Um, and th- that's that's just due to how I grew up and, and my background. It's just Something that I've really wanted to do is just kind of target my hometown, transform that and make it very concentrated so that it it has a very significant impact and that I can show that to other boroughs of London. So I've seen a lot of organisations dip and dabble into different places in London, which is great, but they're very small areas. They're not concentrated. It's very hard to kind of see. I want it to be visual by people that don't know my organisation, but visual to people that come out of Station go, oh, this, this place actually looks nice. Like, it's not it's not as it's not as scary as it used to be it looks kind of different like what's the the, the, there's a vibe there's an aura there's an energy and i've learned that that you know in a place there can be that that kind of vibrancy that it's 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 available it's just how do we make that and with croydon right now it's like deadpan with croydon right now like how me me and my friends see it now it's just like oh croydon okay like oh where we going we're going croydon okay it's just it's it's never like oh what we're going croydon okay cool but then there's other areas which have this issue, but very vibrant, very vibrant. Like um, there's um, Hackney. Hackney is like home to a really vibrant, like obviously it has its issues of knife crime and new violence, but it's such a vibrant, fun place. Like there's stuff to do in Hackney. It's amazing. It's, it embraces all these cultures and there's that element of you can go out and have a good time. In Croydon, it's like, yeah, I want to be back home by 8 p.m. <laughs> like it's, it's different. Um, so it's kind of, you know, like in, in terms of the bigger picture, it's, it's, the community that notices there's a change in Croydon. There's people going into Croydon showing there's a change in Croydon. Um, and essentially everyone in and around Croydon will have 
that narrative that Croydon's changed. And that's that's what that's what I aim to do. So I aim to really concentrate my focus in one borough, make that a standpoint and be like, well, you know, Croydon's changed differently. Like, oh, there's there's this organization that works in every school. Talk, let's do more. Next thing you know, we're in their borough and it comes to a borough of Lewisham or borough of Hackney and, and all, the, all these other areas that have these issues. So that's basically the way I, I see it growing. It's just growing. I think, I think that's a lovely vision because I think that that's almost saying that if we can address it, from a community perspective and de-risk the environment, that will bring in those businesses, those places, those areas, because they feel more secure and safe in that environment to do more positive things. And I don't think, I mean, I, I know it's a, an issue, like you say, in Croydon, and so maybe in Hackney that it's become less of an issue because of the change in the cultural aspect and the vibrancy of that community but it, i think it's a global problem isn't it you know we live in a world where there is a lot of disenfranchised people there are a lot there's a lot of inequality there's a lot of wealth but a lot of poverty there's a lot of separation between people so i think having that vision to be able to actually neutralize different aspects of it and actually start at the grassroots level and change that mindset and change that dynamic can actually then start to hopefully filter through new opportunities and new ideas for people so that they can actually be a part of that. So that's really good. I know you had a busy summer. I just wanted to also kind of touch on this because you last time we spoke, you were very enthusiastic about it. And I I'm, I loved this idea of travel broadening our minds and doing different things and, and that kind of stuff. So you were in America and you did a, a summer with uh, Camp America. So just tell me a little bit, first, what made you wanted to kind of do that? Secondly, what do you feel that you learned from it? And is there or are there things that you can now think about and apply into the, um, the world that you now kind of imagine? Yeah, definitely. So, yeah, Florida was amazing. Like I always, I always say this to my friends and family that, you know, how no one says, you know, the grass ain't green on the other side. That grass is green. That grass over there is greener pastures that I've never seen in my life. It was beautiful. It was amazing. Um, and I'll tell you why. So what, what actually made me do Camp America was multiple things. I mean, I've always wanted to do it ever since I turned 18, 19. Um, and I guess now with, with you know, uni ending and I've, I've, I've graduated now um, and I have this long summer in a sense, I'm 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 able to do it financially, and I'm able to support that. Um, and I want a summer away in in, in Florida. I want to see what you know what it what it is like in America. Um, I just thought it would be a perfect opportunity. Um, but I guess what picked the camp? So there's multiple camps. There's loads. They're all over America. Like the reason why I picked Florida was one, it's heat. I I, I love I love the sunshine. I love the I love the I love the summer. I love the heat. So I, I did want to experience that. Two, I've heard many things about Miami, really wanted to visit there as well. And three, the reason why I picked that specific camp was to see how the dynamic of the young people that I naturally work with will affect the young people over there and how I can kind of change it. And I guess the dynamic over there was their wealth status. So a lot of the young people that actually attended the, that summer camp, they had to pay large heaps of money. So these these kids were very wealthy. They came from really wealthy backgrounds. Um. But I guess, I guess, yeah, the reason why I picked that was dynamic. It was like, look, I work with students who come from a deprived background. I work with students who have these, these issues that they, you know, and this culture, this very London culture. Let me switch it up. Let me see how it works in Florida. And in Florida, despite the wealth of these young people, obviously the, the, the natural instinct of me as a mentor is, oh, this is all great, but let's talk about, you know, real life. Let's talk about what's happening in, in their life. They go through the same 
kind of background situation that the young people in Croydon go for. It's only the element of wealth that changes, but the the situations that they have is that they like very similar to again some of these kids that we see is you know lack of fatherhood, or there's issues back home. There's there's trauma. There's PTSD. But yet their energy, their vibe, their the be- it's just their energy is very positive. And they they know, pardon me, how to overcome it. And yes, they're still young. I worked with kids over there that were from the, about, uh, the age of about eight to 17. But a lot of them would talk about how life would be like outside of camp. So, so, so the summer camp kind of culture in America is to have fun and enjoy yourself. But the camp that I went to was amazing because they had principles, they had values, they had something called ripple. And that would be their values where it's like respect, integrity, play, positive thinking, uh leadership and engagement it's these core values that they bring to these young people regardless of you having fun like i'm I'm just here summer camp i'm just here to have fun but they still integrate these core values and these core principles and the young people learn it so so they, they always come up to me like that's not very ripple and i'm like wow you actually like care about these principles that like, is it's interesting <laughs> um but yeah it's, it's just the vibe and energy and i guess that what that taught me was that i don't think it's about the weather i don't think it's about the wealth i think it's just about the energy that these young people have and the energy that the summer camp is built on. It's built on those core principles, Ripple, but it's also built on, you know, having fun and being a child again and not being scared about what people think about you. You can sing, you can dance, doesn't matter. And I think it's just being a kid again. In London, I was thinking, how do I kind of process that and put it in London? And in London, in London, I think it's more extracurricular activities. So getting them out their shell in that way. And how do I integrate that in TLDM? is to enforce like um, a, a system, a program for my extracurricular activities that integrate these outdoorsy activities and and let the young people be themselves to to basically teach what teach the the principles and the core values of TLDM to the young person, not through you know one to one strict mentoring, also through a fun way, and that may, you know they may be able to process it that in in that way as well. And it was, yeah, it was fascinating. So do you see sort of kind of like T- TLDM sort of uh, operating these kind of things in the UK at some point would be kind of exciting if you, in that regard, of putting together summer camps and that kind of thing? Yeah, honestly, I would love to. I'd love to have a, a half-term camp or summer camp. Now, now, see, these American camps, they were sleep away. So you're with your young people 24-7 on camp, like you live on camp, you eat on camp, you sleep on camp. I don't think they have any of those summer camps in the UK, but if I'm able to make that happen and have a like a 24-7 sleepaway sum, like summer camp or half-term camp, even for a week, and we can enforce these core principles and integrate like the outdoor fun. The the young people wouldn't, they're, they're not allowed their phones in summer camp. They're not allowed their phones. So their yeah. phone gets, gets given to the um, members of staff and the members of staff process their phone and lock it away. For, they don't have their phone for three weeks, two weeks, depends on their thing, no phone. All it is, is just people in the summer camp, the energy, your own energy, and the activities. That's all it was. And I didn't even hear, like, a lot of the young people, I didn't even hear them speak about, oh, I can't wait to go on social media right now. Or I wish I could go on TikTok. Never never heard it. It's like when they got their phone, they're like, oh, yeah, my phone. But they'll put it down and, and carry on playing outside because they 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 have that energy of playing outside and a great way of bringing people together is is instigating activities where people feel connected so how is that how is that kind of thing engaged with in that in the camps they had a system called cabin cleanup 
So all the young people, there'll be 12 of us staying in the camp. So it'll be me, another mentor. So that's two members of staff and then 10 young people. 12 year olds they were they were essentially in year eight they were quite young the dynamic of the young people in these cabins they've placed them so that they're not naturally normally kind of someone that they would interact with in school so these young people are all so different so after breakfast they would come back to the cabin and they'd all have a chore and that chore all those chores accumulate to clean in your cabin to the best best it can be like cleaning that cabin so whether it's shoe rack whether it's doing the beds whether it's cleaning the rafters all these really independent skills that these young people are learning for one thing and two is teamwork and three it's also um compromise it's like oh i didn't want to do the shoe rack today but i did it yesterday so um or i, have, I haven't done the shoe rack you know i don't want to do the shoe rack because it rained but I'll, I'll do it because you know no one else wants to do it so i'll do it anyway so it's that element you see that element of young people go through that like you see young people go you know what don't you you, you don't have to do this chore i'll do it for you and it's just like wow these young people are just growing <laughs> um and and yeah that that element of of teamwork the element of teamwork straight up in the morning straight after you come like, come back from breakfast you've had a long night early morning cabin cleanup straight into teamwork and i think it's just it was beautiful to, to watch the the kids just blossom in, in in this in this environment i just want to touch on uh, a little bit about your sort of kind of journey at essex and essex startups to support business development and support students in their journey so out of the things that you got involved with, and I know you got involved with pretty much everything, you were one of the most enthusiastic of students that we've ever kind of worked with. But is there an, is there a couple of things or or events or or activities or experiences that you got from that that university entrepreneurship business support kind of environment, and the learning maybe that you took away from that? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think I think attending as much as you can and being enthusiastic is the most important like kind of aspect especially if you have a vision and if you if you if you have a dream and i i i believe in in discipline so i believe discipline um helps you kind of achieve those dreams so so you know like doing what you what you know you need to do and for me was you know coming into essex startup so that's i guess that's the that's the first like that innovation center, that that was where it kind of kickstarted for me. That's where my dream started to to come about, and I can I can kind of see like piece the vision together, um, and I guess piece the piece the journey to, to, to towards that. Um, and I guess in my normal course of business management, it would give me like an amazing insight of um of all these models, you know, accounting and finance, management and uh, ethics, and all all these core business, all these core kind of modules, which were you know just knowledge, and and I believe in knowledge is power. So the more I know, the better. But there was one module that stuck out to me was uh, management psychology. So it was about learning about you know the, the, the psychological aspect of the organization is what what people go through, the human behavior, human emotions. Um, and I translated that to the business because one, I really always wanted to stu study ch child psychology and kind of understand young people better. And, and in a sense, upgrade my skill set in terms of working with young people. As I said, like the more I know, the more I feel like I can I can implement a strategy and work with these young people way better. And then I also took that to Essex Startups. So in Essex Startups, I booked an appointment with with you, James, in like 2019, like maybe the first year. Um, and I think I've come up with some horrendous business plans horrendous business ideas <laughs> where James is like yeah no <laughs> and I'm like yeah because what, what you do is you, you know you wouldn't tell me no but you would say you know work on this think about this think about this and when I realize there's a huge list of things to think about I think maybe maybe it won't work so now I'll come back the next year with another kind of business idea and I'll come back the next year and that next year was 2021 um and I think that's where that's where it kick-started that's when I came the idea of you know 
I want to make a social enterprise to tackle life crime and new violence. How do I do it? Yeah, you you, re- you really supported me and you helped me in terms of that mentorship. And then you you guided me to those workshops that Essex Startup set up. Um, if you're an Essex student and you want to start up a business, start up an organization or just learn more about it, go to Essex Startups and attend their workshop. Like, it's actually amazing. The epitome of Essex Startups taught me like um, everything that I essentially didn't really learn in my actual course it was it was this real support the real life how a business runs and what a business really and truly is what marketing is what the different the branding is all these core things that i need to learn about a business and organization and it was it was just fascinating and i think i think ever since my journey of essex startups and all the mornings that i came there and and attended the workshops and attended the programs whether it's i teams that was the first one i attended um, and it was the BME, I think, yeah, yeah. the minority support yeah. one. That was amazing. There was just so many Good. kind of opportunities that, I, yeah, went there. Amazing. I, I mean, you know, I mean, as a testament to the team, I think that's phenomenal. And obviously, you know, we'll we'll share the, your thoughts and everything with that. But I think I think it's a testament to you and that participation um, idea and that enthusiasm of engaging with everything and taking on board things as well, which I think is also a really encouraging sign. So I think it's great that you're, you know, that you've done all of that and you've been a part of all of that. Where now? Because I know that you're looking at different programs here for schools. I know that you're thinking about journey of, of the business. So where now for Neil in five years from here? In in five years, I aim to have multiple projects running in terms of Talk Less Do More. And we'll be in schools, we'll be in the community, it'll it could be in alternative provisions. I guess it's it's wherever the young people are situated and, and whatever, pardon me, whatever client we land in terms of you know working in that school, you would not only see us present in that school, but you would see us broadcasting and marketing those those things that we're doing so for example a school project if we're in a school running life skills coaching and we're teaching that syllabus that we have we will run a project or a fundraising event or anything to support us and the school to work together and we will record those projects we'll we'll broadcast those events and we'll show you you know we'll we'll really publicate and 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 show you guys what we're doing in you know what we've been doing in those five years and yeah it's it's being prominent in Croydon it's being that building that face of Croydon, knowing that that's Neil Chamru, he's the founder of Talk Let's Do More, and he's in Croydon. Just knowing that it's about Croydon and learning about Croydon, and you know, learning about you know, you know, Croydon was classified as a knife crime capital. Like that's insane. But there's this, there's this organisation called Talk Let's Do More. They work in schools. They're amazing. They're like mentors. And yeah, just kind of prominent in in terms of one, that community aspect, and two, social media. I, I aim to market a lot of things through social media and YouTube, um, and I want it to be something new, something authentic that organisations don't see. Okay, I'm going to finish off now with just a few quickfire questions, and then we'll leave with um, uh, how people can get in contact with you and where's the best way of finding um, finding about your work and how they can access that. So a few quickfire questions for you. Um, first off, favourite band or piece of music? J.I. is a rapper, one of my favorite rappers. His name is, yeah, J.I. J.I. Prince of New York. He's my favorite, I'd say, rapper. That counts, right? Yeah, yeah, cool. Uh, last TV series or box set that you uh, that you engaged with, that you really enjoyed? The Office. <laughs> the, Office. the American yeah. one or the UK one? Not the UK one. Nowhere near <laughs> the UK one. I'm sorry. I love what they've done, but the American one is 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 world class. The American one is so funny. So yeah, I love it. <laughs> 
Okay, excellent. Next one is favorite book or reading material that you a that you've enjoyed but b that you would recommend to somebody else hundred dollar startup amazing i recommend it to everyone a hundred dollar startup hundred dollar okay brilliant thank you very much thank indeed you. excellent your favorite meal on your birthday uh it's rice and lentils with chicken curry excellent but it's right. cultural but yeah uh hot and spicy or oh of course yeah, yeah, yeah. that's 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 the, that's the version way that spice is yeah that's mandatory in the food you can't really get away from it <laughs> yeah uh excellent okay all right final bit then is how can we reach you amazing um if you want to reach out to me just search my name neil chamru on linkedin that's me personally um and if you want to reach out to the organization then just drop me an email at cway at tldm.info um and tldm.info is also our website if you want to look up on our website um and if you're interested in joining the team and if you really you know really engage with the vision you really like working with young people and you think you know the you know the values and the vision that you know we or me personally aligned with what you guys have then yeah do drop an email and do do check out the 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 website and that's where you can contact me excellent stuff and people can reach you through the weave as well amazing Thank all you. right okay neil thank you very much indeed that's been brilliant perfect james thank you so much this is so inspiring when somebody who clearly has the talent to do so many different things he chooses to use that to better the environment where he lives in our final conversation for this episode, we hear from Essex student Temini Katsumu, who is using her knowledge and cultural upbringing, as well as the skills she has developed studying law, to find innovative and holistic solutions for women. I'm delighted, absolutely delighted today to be talking to Temini uh, Kasumu, who is basically one of our students at the University of Essex. And we're going to talk a little bit about her journey, but she's got an amazing business, which we want to touch on and talk a little bit about the impact and the way that that business really wants to achieve something fundamental and important. So without further ado, welcome. Thank you so much, James. No problem. Thank you so much for um, being a part of it. Um, Okay, let's just start because you are an international student and you came, uh, was it from Nigeria? Yes, from Lagos, Nigeria, where I was born and bred. I came initially to start uh, A-levels when I was about 15, going on 16-ish. And then the next step was university, but I'd started studying. um, I was studying biology, chemistry, (laughs) um, and mathematics at A-levels. So it was really a huge transition. Um, Studying law at the University of Essex, I went through clearing because I didn't get in to any of the universities that I wanted to go into to study medicine. And I just fell back onto law because that's my dad's background and his dad before him. (laughs) And my brother studied law as well. So it's my younger sister. So it's just in the family. So I thought it would be like a really comfortable safety net. I'm, I'm happy I studied law, especially at the University of Essex, because it was just a really enjoyable experience for me. And I feel like it's such an inclusive space as well. There were so many people from different places across the world that, you know, I really just felt uh, comfortable and at home in another way. So I I, I enjoyed that. And that's how I ended up at uh, University of Essex. And then I went on to do the LVC. And during that time, I just realized I wanted to be doing so much more than law. 
And that's when I had my first meeting booked in with you. <laughs> <laughs> you spoke adequately about law being um, yeah. a family business, but something maybe that there was the familiarity about. Yeah, my dad had a law firm in, in, in Lagos, actually. So it was always the thing where I was supposed to go back to work there. Yeah. Uh, brother works part-time at my dad's firm <laughs> and my sister works at another firm but I think she does a few things now and then with Iocastle and uh, company but I just never really wanted to do that so yeah I was really exploring my options I wasn't too sure about anything regarding entrepreneurship and how to get started I remember some of the ideas that I brought to you and we just like went over those and it was really fun to see I didn't think I'd be on this path now, but that's life. Yeah, so. it is life. It is life. Was it a hard decision to make at the time? Or how did you negotiate that with your family and maybe their expectations? What was it that you explained? This is, this is a really interesting question because um, I don't think anyone took it seriously until I spent years working on it and then finally got the startup visa. So it was always a case where like, they just didn't think I was being serious about it. They just felt like law was the way. And it's through working with the startups team and then seeing that it was something that could be beneficial to other people, could be a credible business idea. And then they started to like listen in on my conversations sometimes with other people that I was sharing. And then like we had some sit downs and we talked about it and they were just so supportive once they figured out that this is something that I'm really passionate about, this is something that I could potentially do and do very well. Because they are very supportive. They've always supported me through everything. It's just they felt law was a safer bet. I needed to complete the process of becoming solicitor because I've studied law. I've done the legal practice course, but you still need to get a trading contract here or do law school in Lagos or Abuja or anywhere else and then qualify through that route. They just really wanted me to do that. And since I didn't do that first, it was a thing where they weren't sure how safe it was me going out in there, like out into the world without having a fallback. And that was their major concern. But otherwise, they are very supportive. I love my parents. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. The journey today, right? So we've gone through that transition. We've gone from law into entrepreneurship. Give us a flavor of some of the highlights of that particular journey. And what what stands out as something that maybe that you're really proud of, and also something possibly that you feel like you would have done differently at that point? Mm, I think lots of things stand out for me. It's been a very interesting process. And I keep finding out things about myself on this journey. So that's interesting too. I think most recent highlights were when I won the People's Choice Award and the Most Sustainable Startup, but more so the People's Choice, because I know what I'm doing. You know, I know what I'm doing in terms of sustainability. I think about these things. I play them over and over again in my head and work out all the fine details. So I know I'm doing um, (laughs) a great job in terms of sustainability. But to be nominated and actually win People's Choice, that's like such a subjective thing that for me, it just really hit me. If that's if that's the right way to yeah, break, yeah. it really just hit me, you know, that I'm doing well. People are seeing 
the steps that I'm taking. You know, it's not just in my head and I don't have to be weighed down by imposter syndrome, you know, because uh, I'm good enough. That, that was a really good highlight. In terms of doing things differently, I would try and connect with more people from the onset. So I think I'm a sole founder. It's, it comes with its own challenges. Um, I think it's just maybe how I've uh, grown up, just being very independent and working, doing things on my own and being happy with that. But I don't think you go very far when you work alone. I am seeing more and more the benefits of being in a community. You know, um, I don't think I've been in many communities. So um, just being in the startup community is that that's been a highlight too. So leaning on other people and like finding help is something that I would advise other people to do because I don't think I did that. And I think that's like a a very key thing that would help any uh, startup founder. So I think that's that's a major thing. So you touched on one of your passions and one of your enthusiasms, which is around sustainability. What was it that really kind of motivated you to think more deeply about how you could impact that aspect? I think, I think I'd start with veganism. I know it's like a, a annoying topic for lots of people, but being a vegan really did help me see things differently. I think my first experience with any vegan was when I started my A-levels so that was here and there weren't a lot of options in terms of food and things like that there's lots of ice cream and milk options and lots of uh, burger choices just lots and lots of stuff now that uh, weren't available then and it was just a very odd thing to be doing back then th- that I thought anyway then at the University of Essex uh, yet again here we are <laughs> I met someone else and she was a vegan and she was comfortable with me um, just doing my own thing, eating chicken in front of her, you know, and she just wasn't um, too in your face about it. And then she would talk about some of the benefits of veganism. And when I made the choice to try it out, I started to think about things like animal welfare, um, environmental impact. And that's where that came in for me. And then I started to think about um, sustainability and exploring other sustainable businesses And then that's when I started to see like all the things that I've been doing, all the things that we do in terms of the single use model that that's so like prevalent in our society. You know, it's just just, it's like the main thing that people do because it's just what's easy and accessible. And then I started to think, okay, how can I incorporate a circular model in a way that is easy in the same way that people use single use things, uh, but still just better for the environment that's the direction we're going in anyway and it's funny I had a conversation with a cousin um, earlier today and she said she felt cheated with a lot of the lotions that she uses Uh, so she snips through the lotion to get the rest of it out and I thought okay so that's also the plastic and then wasteful in another sense as well in terms of the product and so my bubble bombs come in like these little jars that you can literally scrape all around the corners. There's nothing that goes missing. You know, just use it, getting more out of, you know, whatever you're buying. And also being engaging more with what you're buying. When you buy a refill, you have to fill that back in to the yeah. jars. That concept, I really, I really did want that to be something that became more commonplace there's lots of elements with EA. I could I could talk about this forever. Okay, so let's talk about EA. Let's talk about your business. First off, let's let's spread it for everybody because we're okay. a podcast. Okay, so so yes. how is it spelt? What does it mean? 
And what does it do? Okay, so ia is a play on the word mother nature in my native language, Yoruba. But I'm actually from two tribes, so I'm Yoruba and Ishekiri. And they're both uh, tribes in Nigeria, but Yoruba is more prevalent. It's it's one of the three major tribes that we have. Ia, at being related to Mother Nature, is just keying in on using nature to create products and then giving back to nature um, in terms of how we uh, sustainably consume things in, in the sense of making compostable packaging you know or reusable tins where we're not throwing away after each use that kind of system uh so that's that's what ia is about in terms of the name and i i really wanted to link it in but it did start out being eid <laughs> i don't know if you probably remember it being eid which is which was a play on the word ogeda which means banana and this is how i'm going to get into the rest of uh uh, Ia's brand and our message and what we do. It was formerly Eid, which, uh, like I said, was Ogeda, which is banana. So we were going to make banana fiber sanitary towels and we are close now. So I'm happy to say, <laughs> hopefully we, we will be seeing samples very, very soon of the product. It's been three years talking about this and doing research. And finally, it's, uh, I feel like it might be coming to a sort of conclusion when I say sort of, because the product still needs work, but uh, making progress. And I'm so happy, happy about that. We will be making sanitary towels out of banana fibers. We also make herbal teas to help ease period pain and uh, PMS. We're also going to be releasing another tea uh, to manage hormonal imbalances. So that should be another focus that we gear into eventually. We make a vulva balm, so for vulva care, and then we will have other products in the line, but we are starting with just a couple of products for now and uh, seeing how the our customers react to them you know, and uh, seeing where, how we can do better. There's a theme there, which is obviously the circularity that comes from yes, we want to absolutely. use the banana. And, I, and I, I'm right in saying that the bit of the banana that we're using is the bit that would normally get disposed of, composted yes. or just add to CO2 in terms of when yeah. you're using it and repurposing it from that perspective, exactly. which is exactly. hugely valuable. Um, the second aspect of that is about women and about um, empowering women to engage with these products. I can understand it from the sustainability point of view, but mm-hmm. from the women perspective, oh, yeah. what what is it that's sort of kind of out there I, saying I need to do I love that? this question because um, it's very personal. Uh, I used to have terrible debilitating period pain. Um, I couldn't do anything. And I went to doctors and I was prescribed painkillers. That didn't work. And that's not to say Western medicine isn't great. It is. But, you know, there are elements, you know, where herbalism and uh, holistic alternative medicine can also uh, really help. You know, so I don't think we need to forego uh, ancient methods and uh, <laughs> ways altogether. We can pretty much have a beautiful marriage between the two so by that I mean western medicine asian medicine african medicine I really want that to be what he is about anyway so I do uh lots of educational posts and that's uh western medicine related you know on ear so uh ear is also just about educating women about their bodies and that's that's also a personal thing 
because I didn't know much about my body. It's my body, you know. Um, I didn't know that there was a difference between the vagina and the vulva, and that's so key because they have different maintenance requirements. You know, the vagina is self-cleansing. You don't need to do anything. You don't need to douche. Um, meanwhile, there are so many products in the market that uh, promote douching vagina, which is completely unnecessary and actually really bad for women who use them. You know, so it's things like that, uh, pushing products that we don't need, number one, and also products that are harmful to our bodies. So I want to do away with that. I want EAR to be the space where we educate women about what's needed, what's not, what's optional, you know, and can give you a, a pleasurable experience if that's what you're looking for and things like that. That's my main focus. So it is very personal. It starts with uh, it starts with me having period pain and uh, consulting my mom about uh, the other herbs that she was exposed to uh, growing up. And she suggested Egidija, which is grains of selum. So I saved the African name because that's how I started out um, knowing the herb by. And then, so it's called grains of selum in English, and then also hibiscus, that was also recommended by her. And then I added in chamomile and some Ceylon cinnamon, which is from Sri Lanka. That just really added to the blend. It made it yeah. not just in terms of the ingredients that we've been used, but also the taste. So lots of people like how it tastes. And that's another thing that I've experienced personally, when you want to have a herbal product that is proposing to help you in any way it just tastes very disgusting (laughs) (laughs) it just tastes very bad and so it's really hard to consume I didn't want that to be the case I wanted it to be a case where people were happy to drink it because I knew that they would actually drink it and it would then be able to help them so from that perspective that's where the tea came in I felt I really just wanted to offer a holistic service I didn't want to just have uh, sanitary towels because the menstrual cycle is not just about menstruation um, and we only tend to focus about on menstruation and ovulation which is when we get pregnant so when we are having visible signs that something something's different through bleeding or when you know we can give back to the world in terms of child rearing and child bearing and you know so I wanted to talk about uh, the the in between you know um the what comes after ovulation as well so the luteal phase in preparation for menstruation to talk about the follicular phase so which often coincides with the menstrual phase where you're bleeding and then carries on afterwards so things like that were very very key for me because I was going through them I'm going through them so I like the whole idea of women-made businesses women for women you know so you understand that we go through it so we understand it and that's why we're so passionate about it so it's not to exclude men it's just to say oh I hear you I see you I get it because I'm going through it so that kind of message in terms of the work that you're doing say for instance back in sort of Nigeria you're 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 engaging with the supply chain out there obviously the banana sort of kind of plantations and various other things I guess a lot of like the tea content is is coming from domestic sources and that is a lot of the educational process as well giving back to young women in your country that is that is the plan yes that is the plan I am trying to raise more funding so I can actually do something and not just be talking because I feel like that's so key um I have recently 
engaged with environmental. They're a sector from a company called WEN.org in the UK. And I was offering some tea samples for because they they made a post about uh, the stats for women going through menstrual pain, you know, and uh, nothing's been done about it. And I wanted to offer some of the menstrual sport teas for free so I could give help in that way. So I, I'm not really making a profit currently, but I don't think it should stop me from giving back. And maybe that's just the person I am. But uh, yeah, I, I can imagine when we do start to make profit, it's been a dream of mine to give back to certain causes. I know I've spoken to you about things like VVF, so vaginal vesticular issues where there's I don't I don't want to be too graphic. I don't want to be too graphic, but uh, it just it can make it very difficult for women to live with that condition. So with v- VVF because they aren't in control of their bladder yeah (laughs) it's it's just a really sad thing that happens because most of the reason behind it is because little children are married off too early right so we don't need to get into that no we don't need what what comes in with that so it's just really sad that that is one of the major causes of it you know so that's been one thing that i've really want wanted to help out with uh there's other things like when well this is cultural also with specific culture cultures where they have hyenas so people that are allocated to sleep with uh virgins kind of in a way to teach them how to be before they get married or whatever and there's no protection involved so just doing away with like certain things that's where the knowledge aspect comes in because it's just really ridiculous i think ridiculous isn't even the right word um so yeah there's there's lots of things you know I, i really do want to make an impact in a good way you know not just with the environment but with people who need it i think knowing you the years that we've sort of kind of worked and looked at things together in that regard i think your passion your your willingness to talk about it at a at a level which is open discussive but it also gets people thinking which i think is hugely important that may actually come from your legal background as well from the point of view that you know I always think a good lawyer is somebody that can tell a good story as well, you know, in that regard. So <laughs> you've probably got that kind of that background. I've no doubt that you're going to get that message out there in that area. But c- coming back to the business um, itself, you've got challenges. You spoke about you being a sole founder, the challenges with that. Yes, it's revealing you're aware or quite self-aware about your strengths and your weaknesses within that. I can think that your strengths are the passion, the enthusiasm, the visual aspects as well, the brand, Mm -hmm. which is a very beautiful brand to look at and to engage with. Where in that kind of scheme of thing do you think to yourself, these are areas potentially where there are weaknesses in what we're doing and these are the spaces that I would like to fill? I think I'd start with marketing. I recently had a say social media manager. So it was a company that I was working on. I'm not going to say the name of the company. It was they, they focused on affordable social media uh, representation for smaller businesses and they make it affordable. And I just was really unhappy with the process, but it taught me so much because I didn't see a lot of things that they raised and just creating content and the the schedules of that. So I think marketing is one thing that I would need to focus on. And then PR, 
I don't think yeah. I've had any real PR myself outside of the startups community because yes, there've been blog features and that's PR, but outside of that, I've not had any PR. And so I think that's something that is a weakness for me because those two things really help get the message out there. So without them, I'm limited in scope with my reach. You know, I'm not reaching enough people, uh, not reaching enough potential investors or customers, you know, um, just basically my stakeholders, I'm not reaching them. And uh, so that's key for me, I think, uh, in terms of filling, I need to fill that gap. I think also just sourcing funding. I applied to quite a few funding applications. I I think I've done about seven this year. And uh, yes, it's just dealing with those, uh, those rejections. Sometimes it can be hard, but it's just reminding myself why I've started, where I want to go and just pushing through. You can't always have everything, but you do have to work what you do have. So I lean back on that a lot and it's been helping. I think without a shadow of doubt, when you when you look at it from the point of view of A, handling rejections, yeah, because everybody goes through this funding process and we're equally in that stage with our development where we're pitching to people, where we're pitching and tendering for work and we're doing various different bits and pieces. And yeah. it and a lot of it falls on stony ground and you'll think to yourself, how do I keep going? And you're looking at the bigger yeah. picture, which is really, really important to to understand that if we keep that that North Star in focus, I think that's the yeah. bit that will really help us overcome and push the boulder up the hill a bit more. Um, it yeah. is challenging, but again, the community side of it, I think, is really I important. I love that you've mentioned the community aspect because so one day when I had a particularly challenging time handling not uh, submitting an application, I was very convinced that, you know, that was the end of my journey because I was just so exhausted with lots of things. I spoke to uh, Magda, who's also with The Weave. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I shall shout out. <laughs> um, and she just really helped me see things in a different way. So I, I did, connecting with people is so important. I had my sister there with me and my sister's usually able to get through to me. But that day, something just wasn't like clicking in her, like in how she was speaking to me. And I don't know why, but it's just, it's just one of those things. So I went on a call with Magda, kind of like mentorship that I have with you. And uh, we just spoke and I just, yeah, I just felt so much better. And like, I, re- I remembered I had a North Star to start with. So. <laughs> she, she's phenomenal when she does that. But yes, you're, you're right. I mean, the community side and having that around. Is that something, again, with the Essex startups team that's mm-hmm. there? I think yeah. they've done an exceptional job when it comes to building and starting yeah. to build that community. I, I know COVID and lockdown and the campus. Even- covid it was yeah. incredible it was incredible because yeah. i started working with the essex startups team during covid so i i can imagine what it was like before that it was incredible and it still is incredible i still have support i think i'm five years post-grad almost and i'm still receiving support so it's 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 pretty incredible i love it there's always something going on as well and i think again a t- testament to the, to to the team the university for recognizing the value of an entrepreneurial outcome Mm. when it comes to graduation as well and it wasn't like that in many universities 10 years Mm -hmm. ago we we meet a lot of people who say wow it was Mm -hmm. never like that in my day you know there's always that so I think that plays testament to the university and to the culture that that's trying to emerge through all of this I think that's also with the recent program that we did together when you had the careers 
advise people come in and be a part of that just to show that there are different avenues you don't always have to just go with just your degree alone <laughs> whatever yeah. is assigned so for instance if you started with law like me you don't necessarily have to become a lawyer there's so many ways that you could use your law degree yes i use my law degree but i <laughs> there are other things that you could use it for is the is the point you don't need to get anxious and uh, stressed out about you know maybe Perhaps if you felt like you chose the wrong degree, there's no such thing, you know, you can use that towards anything else in your future. And that's that's just really important to note. So I, I, I like that that's, that's something that's being promoted now more so than ever. Yeah, and that, that's hugely important. And I, I think I found that personally when I went through my own career transition was how does one utilize skills and qualities that you've got from one industry or one environment and how do you reshape right. them, make them relevant for new development and new ideas? Yes. And I think you've got that mindset to be able to say, I have these skills. What does law teach me? The yes. disciplines of, you know, the, mm-hmm. the academic disciplines, the rigor behind it, the detail that you kind of immerse yourself in. So just tell me a little bit about the future. What would IA look and recognize as being a successful business in five, 10 years time? I think if we became a household name, that would be pretty great. Um, That would be a huge marker for success for me, firstly. I think also if I had spaces, lots of spaces where women could be comfortable just being themselves, like talking about their problems, because I know this is a sensitive thing, but I feel like sometimes when I speak to people at pop-ups, things like that, I get the sense that they don't want to talk about these things, you know, so they might just uh, shy away from it or just uh, maybe even lie about it because they don't want to be seen as uh, having a certain condition or, you know, having trouble at all. You know, we're just supposed to be this perfect dean sometimes, I think, and that's not the case. So I feel like communicating when things are going wrong or, you know, you're not sure about something uh, openly and not feeling that shame about your own body and what what it's going through that would be another key marker for me so that would be the second I think third I would be if I'm actually helping people in from less fortunate um, backgrounds you know I've been fortunate my dad has paid for my education it's been private education and he's still supporting me now <laughs> even now so I think another key marker for me would be to help other people. I haven't had everything that I want I want in life. No, by no means. I'm not rich <laughs> in that sense. No, that would be nice. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, that would be nice. But no. Um, so to help other people who basically a lot of times have nothing, that would be another key marker for me to say, yes, EA has done what I wanted it to do. That's the future of EA for me. So those three things are really important to me. Finally, I would say convincing people to change their mindset about the single use, single use structure economy that we have uh, going on is people to think, oh, I can do this instead of this. Even if it's more difficult, I would be happy if because of EA, people felt, hmm, let me actually do this extra step just because it's better for the environment, that kind of thing, or people thinking, how can I offset my carbon emissions today? And then for EA to have a system where we help with that. So I've bought from this company before, it's a yoga company, and they plant a tree for you with every purchase. That's amazing. So if I could have something like that, where I'm helping my customers as well without them thinking too much about it. They're just buying one thing and I'm helping them offset their carbon emissions. Total of those four things would, would mean success in a really big way for year. I think there's a couple of things there. I think I love this 
idea of a brand becoming more than just simply about selling product. It's about providing a safe space for its community. It's about opening up conversations in different ways. It's about educating people and changing their mindsets about what they're doing. And I think you've got all of that. I always remember there was, for me, there are kind of four key areas of brand or three three that you focus on, one of which is purpose, being central about what it is that you're actually trying to achieve with all of this. And I think you've got that clarity within your your mind. I think it's about community as opposed to customers. I think customers live in our communities, but communities go beyond that remit. And I think it's about technology as well, because it's the way that we can facilitate all of this good stuff going on. And it's the narrative that overrides that whole thing that then becomes the brand to the, the way that we wanted to communicate. If I look at a brand and it's got those elements and it's got it's talking about things in a very humanistic and emotive way, for me, that's that's hugely relevant. And it's what we do in, in our accelerator programs. It's what we do with a lot of the stuff is get people to start talking about those conversations in more meaningful ways. You touched on one of the weaknesses I don't think I mentioned, so technology. I think that's the, that's another thing, like utilising it in the way that is great for growth anyway. Yeah. I don't think I use it as as, as it should be used. <laughs> I think that's, that's I, another thing I've, I've learned. It's massively challenging so. for a lot of businesses because every business that we believe, every business this day and age has to be a technology-based business. It has to embed technology into its processes in order to create efficiencies and room for it to grow and for, for it to scale, yeah. but it has to be manageable and directional within the business. So in other words, you, you, it's yeah. not just about bolting on something. So what we're trying to do within the Weave is build up a toolbox of technologies that people can tap into, whether it's AI, whether it's platforms, whatever it is that we've got access to that we can share within the community yeah. and say, look, just dip in. We can co-run events through our AirMeet platform. We can facilitate other things you know, through AI technologies that we've got. Okay, quick fire round. Favourite <laughs> band, favourite bit of music? 1975, favourite band. Oh, excellent. So they're, they're, <laughs> they're very relevant at the moment, aren't they? Favourite box set film that you last saw or engaged with? In the cinema, Equaliser. Ah, Super great. Oh, oh right. Okay. Yeah, I enjoy <laughs> I, I enjoy those films enormously. Favourite book, last book you read or favourite book that you would recommend? A favourite book, I would say The Power of the Subconscious Mind or... Okay. Atomic Habits, yeah, right now. And those that's just because those are the most recent ones that I've read. I like i like each book I read <laughs> in succession. It's it's Excellent. my favourite book for that time. <laughs> Lovely. And um, I feel like this is the next question is going to be a nice sort of kind of vegan sort of outing. But you're, you're, the, the, meal <laughs> that you would, the meal that you would like to eat on your birthday. Oh, Egosi. And I, I had that on my birthday. My birthday was last week. <laughs> and what was, what was it? What was it called? Um, Egusi. So it's basically a soup. It's a Nigerian meal. It's uh, a soup made with melon seeds and uh, some spinach and tomatoes, or less so for some people, onions. Um, yeah, it's just really delicious and lots of spice. Excellent. Good stuff. stuff, in Good stuff. <laughs> All right, Timothy, thank you very much indeed for your time and thank, thank you, you for being on the much. podcast. Just the final part of this how can people reach you? What's Where's the best place to get hold of you? So I think Instagram at the moment or email. So you can reach me at we are Ia, spelt E double I A. That's on Instagram. And then also on our website, you can reach us uh, through the chat function on our website. Site and our website is called We Are Ea 
com, and then also by email hello at weareia.com just make it very easy to get in touch with us so we are mother nature is the is the idea I'll be honest, when I started working for The Weave, I never thought I'd be editing a podcast which featured a company making hygiene products from bananas. What a joy it is to see driven entrepreneurs looking at a waste product and seeing how it could be used to benefit others. I hope she reaches her markers of success as soon as possible. And as a side note, it's always great to hear from another fellow vegan. Not only is she making business decisions that reflects her commitment to people and the environment, but she is living that in her daily choices. So there we have it, another collection of inspiration from our region. As I mentioned before, we have a free community that can be found over at weareTheWeave.co.uk, which has so much to help you in your entrepreneurial journey. Myself and James look forward to seeing you there. Obviously, we'll put all the links to everybody that spoke today in our show notes, and I just wanted to take the time to thank all those who have taken part in this episode. We've got a great show for you coming up next time, including a conversation about a talking therapy you may never have heard of. So stay tuned for that. Anyway, I've been Adam Roxley from The Weave, and I will see you on the inside.